There's a nice humming accompanying me as I preach today. I don't know if you're able to hear it out there so much or not. So I I was in middle school. I was in middle school at a youth camp. You can always tell a good story when it begins, I was in middle school, right? Because all the most awkward, horrible things that happen in life typically happen in middle school. I was in middle school. I went to a youth camp. I honestly, I don't remember a whole lot about the week. Um, but what I do remember is that at one of the final evening youth rallies, we had, we, we had reached the end of the last message. And, and I was, of course, very excited to be able to leave that talk. I have no idea what the speaker was speaking about that night. Um, I'm pretty confident that I was, um, that I was doing everything I could to distract my mind. I was probably counting the number of heads in the audience that night. The speaker finished, and so I got excited to leave. And then, and then all of a sudden, something that was kind of surprising, something kind of startling happened. One of my leaders stood up. So the, the, this, was, this was a large conference. There were a number of youth groups here. One of the leaders from my youth group stood up, one, one of the adult leaders, and then walked down front. And I thought, huh, that's weird. I thought, I thought it was going out that way, not, not down that way. Where is he going? And uh, within a couple minutes, a number of other leaders from other youth groups had also stood up and proceeded down to the front. And then they kind of just stood there, and I was totally confused. I hadn't been paying attention. I'm sitting here scratching my head trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And then, uh, and then pretty quickly, I see, I see some students beginning to, uh, to stand up and beginning to kind of trickle down to the front as well to stand by their leader. And they're, they're all standing down there, and I still have zero idea of what's going on. The only thing that I realize is that my leader is standing down there all by himself. And I thought, wow, that's really awkward. Um, and, and I just felt badly for the guy. I mean, he was standing down there looking all lonely. And so I, I felt bad. I wanted to, I wanted to help him in some way. I, I felt some indignation. I felt compassion towards him. I felt like something needed to happen. I looked over at the rest of my youth group and no one was standing up to go down there. No one was going to go support him and encourage him. And, um, I mean, at this point in time, I didn't really know these other students. I was brand new. I think this was one of the first things I ever did with this youth group and one of the last things. Um, and so I'm sitting there looking at them like, why are you not supporting this guy? Like the poor guy is just down there. So, uh, so, so finally I stand up with all kinds of confidence and all kinds of, uh, pride that I was willing to take that step and support our youth leader. And I went down center aisle and for that 30 seconds, I felt really good about myself. I felt really good about myself. I was like, yes, I'm brave. I'm bold. I'm confident with all of my 12 year old vigor. I got down to the front, smiled at him. He looked back at me, he smiled, and then he quickly asked the question, oh, so you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I froze. I sat there thinking, oh. So it wasn't until years later in seminary that I would learn what an altar call was. Um, At that point in time, I had absolutely no idea. And he thought I was down there for one reason, and that is clearly not the reason why I was down there. So I froze. And all all of my confidence, all my courage that I had felt 10 seconds prior had now completely faded in the light of my social faux pas. 
And so with, uh, with, with all my middle schoolishness, I, of course, responded with a very squeaky, sure. And so, uh, and so, so he led me through a prayer. I repeated after him. It was a prayer very similar to the one I had prayed years previous, um, to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Um, I repeated after him. He handed me this little blue card. So I went ahead and signed my name off on it. And, uh, and that's the story of how I lied to receive Jesus. I mean, prayed to, to receive Jesus. So the moral of the story is you need to actually listen to what I'm saying this morning. No zoning out. No, you you need to pay attention because you never know what's going to happen at the end of a talk. I mean, guilt, right? Guilt swept over me. Fear, judgment, shame. Um, It wasn't the last day of camp. There were still a few more days. And so from that point on, I was that kid who got up and made the, made the decision to follow Christ. And everyone was really excited for me. And I, of course, just hung my head in shame. I didn't really receive Christ that weekend. In fact, I, I hadn't received Christ prior to that either. My, uh, my belief, my trust in Christ wouldn't actually come till later. One thing I did receive that weekend, though, was guilt. I received a lot of guilt. Guilt is something we all experience. We all have our stories. Maybe not, maybe you don't have a, this is how I lied to receive Jesus story, but we all have our stories of guilt, of things that we've done wrong through the years, of sins that we've been involved in, of whatever. Ed Welch, a noted uh, Christian counselor and author, estimates that around 85% of our population at any given time is struggling with some feelings of guilt. He goes on to hypothesize that that 15% that's not feeling it either either just has a numbed conscience or they're, uh, or, or they're just maybe they're having an unusually good day or they're just liars. But the rest, 85%, are feeling guilt at any given time. But guilt doesn't have to necessarily be a bad thing. It doesn't always have to be a bad thing. It can be crushing. It can divide families. It can divide friendships. It can send us into a downward spiral. But it doesn't have to take that course. As we delve into our passage today in Genesis 42, we'll see the consequences of years of accrued guilt in the lives of the sons of Jacob and how God will begin to turn it for a very different purpose. Today we'll look at God's gracious guilt for the growth of God's people. God's gracious guilt for the growth of God's people. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, again, you are good. Lord, we come to you in the scriptures this morning, Lord, expecting to hear you speak to us, expecting to for, for your spirit to be at work, revealing the beauty of your son in your word. Lord, I pray that you would work powerfully, that you would bring conviction into our hearts. God, that you would guide my words as I speak, that they would conform to your words. And Father, that you would be accurately portrayed. Father, please just be with us. Please just guide us. Please convict us. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Again, beginning in Genesis 42, our passage from Genesis continues the life of Joseph. We've seen Joseph go from tribulation to triumph, from the pit to the pinnacle. He's been enslaved, abused, imprisoned, and forgotten. But... 
he's also been promoted. He's been entrusted. He's been celebrated, right? All the way up to the position of the Grand Vizier of Egypt. What's more, God has been with him through it all. God has been a continued source of strength, of presence in his life. The Pharaoh had received dreams from God. He had received dreams that there would be seven years of abundance, but then it would be followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh promoted Joseph as a voice of wisdom to guide him and Egypt for those 14 years. Joseph began a family. He got married. He had two sons. Things were going well for Joseph. In fact, the story could have ended at this point as a, and he lived happily ever after. And that would have been right. But God had different plans. God had different plans. What about the rest of the family of Jacob? Had God forsaken them? Were they, were they to continue to play any role in God's plan to bless the nations? The verse, verses 1 through 5 pick the story back up with a brief glimpse at Joseph's family in the land of Canaan. Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, our previous chapter, chapter 41, closed, uh, closed unsurprisingly by saying that the entire world, the famine had affected the entire world. And now the entire world, all the nations were streaming into Egypt to be blessed by what God had done through Joseph. This certainly would have included his own homeland, his own personal homeland, the land of Canaan, where Joseph's estranged family lived. At this point, around 20 or so years had actually passed since Joseph had been sold into slavery by his family. Being aware of the surplus in Egypt, Joseph sent 10 of the brothers to purchase grain. Now notice here that he refused to send Benjamin, the 11th brother, though this certainly would have increased the amount of food that they could have gotten back, right? Having one more, one more pair of hands to carry food back. It certainly would have increased the amount of food that they brought back. But just as Jacob had previously done with Joseph, Jacob continues to show favoritism towards Benjamin, towards the son of Rachel. Um, all those years ago. And of course, that was the very thing that precipitated all of these events. Once there, the brothers have, have the most unlikely meeting they possibly could have imagined. Picking up in verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them. Okay, put a pin in that. Joseph would have been unrecognizable to his brothers at this point, right? I mean, 20 years have passed, and Joseph has been through so much. At this point in time, living in Egypt and being in culture there, he would have been completely shaven. He would have been wearing a wig, dressed as Egyptian aristocracy. He would have been wearing traditional Egyptian makeup, speaking fluent Egyptian, and addressed by an Egyptian name. Joseph was a different man than the boy that they had known all those years prior. 
But he recognized them. They had aged 20 years. They had grayed. Their skin had probably leathered some from all of the work that they had, from all the outside manual labor that they had done. But otherwise, their dress, their mannerisms, their language, they would have all been the same. Joseph knew them instantly. God had brought together this unlikely meeting. Joseph, uh, what's more, Joseph noticed, Joseph noticed that this, the brothers bowing down before him, it was a fulfillment of the dreams that, that God had given Joseph all those years ago. God was fulfilling his promises here in this moment. And immediately, Joseph had to grapple with the question, what do I do now? What do I do now with my brothers here standing before me? One has to wonder how many times he, he had contemplated this. He had daydreamed about this moment through the years, right? Wondering, how, how would I handle myself if this happened? Well, that moment is finally here, and we get to see. Joseph came up with a scheme. He worked quickly, and he came up with this. Picking back up in verse 7. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you were spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land you have come to see. And they said, we're your servants. I'm sorry, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Playing ignorant and curt, his plan began to unfold. He's driven by several desires here. We know that he especially wants, the, wants to learn the condition of the rest of his family, Jacob and Benjamin. He wants to know what has happened to them over these past 20 years. But he also wants to know who have his brothers, who have these ten, who have these ten that are standing before him, who have they become through all of this time? And are they genuinely trustworthy? He would have no confidence that he could actually trust anything they say. Now, remember, these brothers, these weren't innocent lambs. These were hardened men. These weren't the sort that we would, that we would promote in our church today. They would not, and they would not make it into the Stephen ministry. I can guarantee you that. Right? These were hardened men. One of them, the oldest Reuben, had actually slept with, it, with one of his father's wives. The second two, Simeon and Levite, had tricked and massacred an entire people. Judah, we just read about a few chapters ago, he had actually impregnated his daughter-in-law. Not to mention what these ten had done to Joseph himself. Right? This was a motley crew. 
Joseph couldn't have been sure that they even would have allowed Benjamin to live. Why would they allow Benjamin to, why would they allow Benjamin to live after everything Joseph had experienced? Surely Benjamin would have been treated as a favorite by Jacob as well. Why wouldn't the brothers treat him exactly the same way they treated Joseph? He couldn't know exactly what had happened. And had he been forthright, had he, had he just come out immediately, the brothers could have tried to cover up their wickedness. So Joseph, Joseph determined to learn more through catching them off guard and through playing coy with this, with this accusation of espionage. He accused them of being spies. To defend themselves, the brothers began pouring out information to establish more credibility that they were on this relief mission, trying to bring food back because of the famine. They affirmed that they were there to buy food. They they affirmed that they were all brothers of one man. They affirmed that they were honest men, which that should raise some brows, right? They affirmed that they were all honest men, and they even go on to include extra details, like verse 13, that they have two more brothers. They have one at home, the brother that Joseph was waiting to hear about, Benjamin, but they also have another one who is no more. Now, the inclusion of Benjamin at this point, that makes sense, right? Because the famine could go on for, well, they have no idea how long the famine's going to go on for. So it's likely they're going to have to make return trips and likely that they'll even need to bring Benjamin with them at some point in time. So it's better to be forthright about Benjamin's existence now so they don't take, they don't take Joseph off guard later on. But why do they include this little portion about Joseph? There was no reason to mention the brother that has been gone for 20 years except for, of course, guilt. Guilt that was continuing to weigh on them. Guilt that was continuing to keep the memory of Joseph fresh in their minds so that they're quick to bring him up. There's a weight of guilt that has caused their shoulders to slump through the years. It's this weight that brings him to mind now. It's this weight that continues to, to encourage these brothers to think about him. This revelation about Benjamin gives Joseph the knowledge that he had needed. He wanted to find out what had happened to his youngest brother, and now he knows. And he unveils his test to them. He'll keep nine of the brothers captive in prison while the tenth one returns home to get Benjamin as evidence of the, uh, as evidence that they've been telling the truth. Now, obviously this wouldn't really prove anything because the brothers could easily bring someone else back. But Joseph, honestly, isn't at the end of the day really testing their honesty at this point. Joseph is just wanting to see his brother. So first, he'll let all ten sit in prison for three days. And we pick back up in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you were honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in what we in, uh, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, did I not tell, did I not, or did I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. 
They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's, every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Joseph changed his plans on his brother's, at his brother's release. It's hard to say exactly why his plans changed at this point. It's possible that maybe he always had this plan in mind, or maybe potentially it's motivated by compassion and the desire to make sure, to, to make sure that the families had enough grain. By sending nine back to the land of Canaan, they were able to carry more goods with them. So it was possibly motivated by this, and there's a couple of things in verse 19 that maybe hint that direction. But either way, instead of keeping the nine and sending the one, he'll send the nine and he'll keep the one. And in addition to allowing the brothers to carry more relief home, having to leave one brother behind, having to watch that one brother be bound and then cast into the pit of prison replicates their dealings with Joseph so many years prior. Right? This whole scene is a little too familiar for the brothers. Their years of guilt that they've learned to manage is incited, and it begins to seep out, and they respond accordingly. Again, from verse 21, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. To each other, they confessed their guilt over seeing their brother and what they had done to him. These events have served to rip off the band-aid of an old festering wound that had never really healed in the first place. It's been festering for 20 years. I, I love Reuben's response here. Did I not tell you? Did, right? D- didn't I tell you that this was going to happen? It's basically, I, and I told you so. It's exactly what I would have done in Reuben's situation. I told you so. Their, gr- their guilt here, their guilt is driving them to sorrow. But that's not a bad thing. In fact, that's actually a good thing. Guilt is a difficult topic to, to, uh, to address in our culture because our culture typically considers guilt to be such a negative thing. There's a need in our culture to be positive and to ignore anything that might break from incessant positive thinking. There's a need to be positive, right? We're kind of a happy, clappy culture. And, uh, and not, not, only, not only is guilt difficult to talk about for this reason, but it's also difficult because it covers such a wide range of things when we begin to talk about guilt. But here in our passage, we see specifically an example of God's people feeling guilt because they've sinned. They're feeling guilt over their sin, and that's a good thing. That means that sin is having an effect on their hearts. That means that their God-given conscience has been violated, and it's good that they're made aware of that. It's kind of like pain. Most of us know how pain works, right? We, we, we have pain receptor nerves in our fingers and around our body so that if something happens, if our body is damaged, our body becomes aware of it quickly. Our pain receptors send a signal up to our brains. Our brains take that signal and it interprets them. And that's the experience of pain that we feel. And we feel it so that we can react accordingly, so that we can remove whatever it is causing damage. It's like a warning system. Hey, there's something wrong. You need to take action. 
So even though we typically view pain as being a negative thing, it's actually a positive thing. It tells us that we need to react. It's the same way with guilt over sin. It awakens us to the reality that something is wrong and that it needs to change. We have to take action. God is using their guilt for good. Their guilt is his grace for the growth of his people. But God wasn't going to leave it in the realm simply of awakening their guilt. Through Joseph's test, God is going to continue to add pressure and weight, and their guilt would continue to increase. You see, God has bigger plans here than even reconciling Joseph with his family. He's got something bigger than that. God has a plan, not just for Joseph, but for all of Jacob's sons to be an avenue of God's blessing to the nations. But first, God was going to refine Joseph's brothers. Their guilt would increase, would increase. There would be no more hiding or bearing what they had done. Joseph sends off the nine with their bags packed with grain and the money they had brought, they had brought to, pay, uh, to pay for that grain. Picking up in verses 26 through 28. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? The realization that some of the money had been put back into the sack startles them. It certainly would have looked like, now it certainly would have looked like they had stolen from Egypt. They had stolen from Joseph and their credibility would be completely gone. I imagine they didn't check the other bags at this point in time simply out of fear of what they expected they would find. Their guilt gives birth to fear and through it all, they see God's hand at work. There's a reckoning for their sins. God is continuing to heap guilt upon their shoulders because he has a bigger, more glorious plan for them. This guilt is grace. Verses 29 to 38. When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord, the, um, the man, the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to them, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, the sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And, and I will deliver your brother to you. You shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, uh, and, and they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. He is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. 
they arrived home to Canaan to report to Jacob what happened. And they discovered the rest of the money in their sacks. And Jacob will have none of it. He, he accuses the ten of bereaving him, jo- of bereaving him Joseph. Now, this is ironic because I think here Jacob is speaking better than he actually knew. Because, of course, the ten did bereave him Joseph. They did take Joseph and steal him away from them. But I don't think he's aware of that yet. Rather, it seems that Jacob is lashing out against them and again showing his favoritism for the sons of Rachel over the rest of his sons. Joseph and Benjamin continue to hold a place of uh, of favorite for him. The brothers are trapped, right? At this point in time, we reach the end of this account and we feel that they're trapped. We feel that there's no way out. They, they can't return to Egypt without Benjamin and Jacob certainly won't let that happen. But again, they, they can't, uh, they can't go down to Egypt without him to save Simeon from his pit. This, this situation is the result of their sin. It's like they're trapped in a room where the walls are slowly pressing in harder and harder. Their guilt and the consequences of their actions are crushing in on them. And again, this is a gift from God. God brings conviction of our sins in our lives to turn us back to him. John 16, 8, and when he comes... Here he is referring to the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is grace. This convicting work of the Spirit is grace because God uses it to draw people to himself by inciting a holy guilt in them. Second Thessalonians 7.10 For godly grief... For godly grief produces repentance and leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, right? There's a sense in which godly grief produces, it leads to repentance, whereas there's a worldly grief that actually leads us away from it. This is a godly grief that we see in this passage. He means this to transform the brothers of Joseph. The transformation process is rarely easy or certainly not enjoyable. We, we, we prefer the process to be like sitting in a hot tub or sitting in a sauna or, or maybe getting a massage. Wouldn't that be great if that's how transformation happened? But that's not. That's not how it happens because we're hard and because our sin is nasty, right? It's just like working out. Your muscles grow as the fibers are ripped down and torn apart. As they're ripped, they're able to grow back stronger. It's the same process with us. This guilt rips down. And that's what God was doing for these brothers. He was ripping them down so that they could be built back into something greater. This is God's gracious guilt for the growth of his people. Some of you here today are struggling for, or struggling with guilt over your sin. And you've tried different strategies to get through it. You've possibly tried anesthetizing it with alcohol or drugs. And yet it still continues to hang heavy upon your soul. You've tried ignoring it, intellectually convincing yourselves that, well, maybe my sin isn't that bad. Or who, who are they to even call that sin in the first place? And yet it's still there. And it still continues to weigh in on your conscience. Or some even try to muffle it through attempting to be really religious. Sure, I feel guilt, but if I'm just good enough, if I just make up for it in all of these ways, then, then maybe I'll find some relief from it. But the problem is, is we're never good enough. You're never good enough to dig your way out of it. 
Or maybe you even just tried drowning it with entertainment and with hobbies. But at the end of the day, the TV show still has to have an end, right? And once that show ends, the grief, all of it, the guilt comes flooding back in. All you've really done is put it off temporarily. It's always there waiting to crush you. But there is a way out. There is a way out. For those of you who maybe don't know Christ today, especially, there is a way out for you. First, you have to embrace that you are sinful. You are sinful. You absolutely are. In fact, you're far worse than what you actually even realize. You're far more sinful than you dare, than you dare to believe. And the more we embrace that reality, the more it opens our hearts to appreciate how much Christ has done for us. Second, if you don't know Christ, you need to embrace that true freedom that only comes through forgiveness in Him. The world is going to give you so many different therapeutic ways to try to work through, to try to work through your guilt, and all of them will lead to nothing. Christ is the only way. He is the only avenue because he is the come. He is the one who came to lead us through the bog and the mire of our guilt because he's the one who took his, took our guilt upon himself when he died upon the cross. He took our guilt and now he wants to give you his peace. It's the most unfair trade in all of history. He takes our guilt and he gives us peace. And all, all that we are called to do is to put our trust in him. We put our trust in him and we repent of our sin. Christians, you also are sinful, right? This isn't just for non-Christians. You also are sinful. And so many of us are struggling with guilt over so many different things. If it's guilt from sin, I encourage you to embrace your sinfulness. Embrace recognizing that you are a sinner. You are sinful and use that to drive you into deeper communion with Christ. Use it to drive you deeper. Godly sorrow over sin should move the Christian to confess our sins to God and to each other and to strive for repentance. We embrace, we embrace Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Notice that passage doesn't say there's no condemnation for those who have their lives cleaned up. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for those who are perfect. It says that there are the, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not a fear of condemnation that you need to worry about. But at the same time, Romans chapter 6, verse 6 tells us that God's grace is so overflowing in the Christian life that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, so we don't have to continue to wallow in our sins. God has a bigger plan for you. He has transformation for you. God is bigger than our transgressions, and Christ is sweeter than our sins. We need to cast our eyes upon him. God will use your guilt as grace to draw you into deeper communion with him. So don't waste your guilt. Don't waste it. Jump into your guilt and use it to drive you into Christ. Declare, yes, I am sinful. Absolutely. What of it? Take me to my Savior. That's where I'll find my peace. That's where I'll find my rest. Again, 
This is guilt from sin that we're talking about. But I don't want to miss that there are so many other people struggling with guilt for such a broad variety of reasons. Such a broad variety of reasons, and we can't speak into all of them this morning. For those of you who are struggling with guilt for whatever things, whether it's based on shame, whether it's based on your inability to do something that frankly was outside of your control, whether whatever, whatever the reason for your guilt is this morning, find someone to talk to if you're struggling. Find someone that you can be honest with, someone who will point you back to Christ, someone who will pray with you, someone who will give you wise, godly wisdom in the midst of your, in the midst of your struggles. Maybe talk to an ABF leader if you're involved in an adult Bible fellowship. Maybe talk to a Stephen minister or someone who was there to listen. Don't try to do it on your own. God has a plan to use the guilt of Joseph's brothers to shape and transform them. God has a plan for your guilt too. We all have ample reason to feel guilt in our lives. Maybe, maybe we don't all have a, a story about lying to receive Jesus like I shared earlier. Maybe we don't all have that, but we all have ample reasons to feel guilt in our life. But the good thing is, is we serve a God who delights to take ugly things and turn them into beautiful things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that guilt would not be a hindrance to knowing you and to driving after you and to seeing you more fully. But Father, that guilt would be a vehicle that would lead us back to you time and time again as our consciences are pierced by your word and by your spirit. Lord, cause our relish and our delight in you to continue to grow. Father, please work powerfully. We need you. God, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. This comes out of Jude, verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Have a blessed week. Just like in past weeks, the ushers will dismiss you. So please just hang in there for a moment. For a moment, they'll dismiss you row by row. Have a good Sunday.